Welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Matthew. Chapter 16. You may be familiar with this story, Matthew 16. And we're going to start reading at verse 13. It says, And when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they begin to give their answers. They said unto him, Some say that thou art, or thou art, or you are, John the Baptist. Well, that's significant because John the Baptist at this point in time has been beheaded. So they think he's the ghost of John the Baptist. Some thinks you're Elias. This is the Greek for Elijah from the Old Testament. Elijah, the one who was captured away in the chariot of fire. So maybe you're Elijah. Somehow come back to us. And others think maybe you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Word around town is you're something special. But he said unto them, Isn't it just like Jesus? He may ask us the general question, but he always brings it home. He said unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You can be seated. Thank you for standing in respect to the word of God. This is a a powerful story, and and we're going to maybe dig into this and some other verses here, maybe from a different perspective than normal, but It's dangerous today. I got in the pulpit way too early. I can't go past the normal message, so we're going to get a message and a half today. No. This is an incredible story about Simon Peter. He was one of the the first ones that Jesus walked by the, the seaside, right? And he sees Simon and Bartholomew and Andrew and Bartholomew's brother, it just slipped my brain, James, in the boat fishing. And he says, hey, come follow me. There had to have been some alluring factor that pulled them out of the boat. You're on your job. Some random guy walks by and says, hey, quit working and come do what I'm doing. You just bailing? There's there's some alluring fact. And whatever it was, it pulled Peter and Andrew out of their boat and they began to follow him. And Jesus made the declaration, I'll make you fishers of men. He spoke something through those words that caused them to want to become a follower. And so... Here they are following Jesus day after day, week after week, seeing the miracles, seeing the the crowds, the multitudes. 
hearing all the people talk about what's going on with Jesus. And Jesus brings it home. I imagine this isn't in, this is just this is just my imagination. I can see Jesus and his disciples maybe every evening or a few times a week they just kind of have fireside chats. The crowd's gone, the multitudes dissipated. It's just Jesus and his disciples and they're kind of sitting around the fire, maybe they're eating dinner. Roasted lamb and asparagus, I don't know. And Jesus just casually asks the question, hey, you guys, what have you been hearing? Who do, who do people think I am? Who do, what's the word on the street? What's, what's people saying? And they begin to go through the lists, naming the prophets. I can see Jesus setting down his ribeye. Hey, guys, who do you think I am? Well, uh... The others are trying to formulate their words. Their brain's going 100 miles an hour. Man, i got to say this right. If I don't say the right thing, I could really mess up my relationship right here. This is a pretty good gig. i got to make sure I don't mess this up. How do I, how do I respond to this question? Who, who do I think he is? And while they're still contemplating, trying to figure out their answer, Simon Peter just blurts it out. He's probably got corn on the cob falling out of the side of his mouth. He's got coleslaw all in his face in his beard, and he's just yelling it out. Man, you're Christ. You're the son of the living God, man. That's who you are. And that was Simon Peter's nature. He just went after it with everything that he had. Christ asked us. He calls us to have that same type of reckless abandonment when it comes to serving Him. No, we're not all going to be mere images. God didn't ask us to be clones and stamps of Simon Peter. But He did ask us to move beyond the comfort zones of, of holding back and to allow us to push ourselves maybe a little bit beyond our comfort zone into that reckless abandonment of our life to be a follower of Him. You know, if you've ever doubted your potential to be a Christian, look at Simon Peter. If anybody can be a follower of Jesus, Simon was. And if Simon was, anybody can be. What's he known for? He's... He's known for all of his stumblings. He's known for all of his mistakes. He's known for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He's maybe one of our favorite Bible characters that we can read and study. If you haven't ever done a character study on Simon Peter, it is an interesting read. It's an interesting story to follow. An individual who just follows Christ on a whim, but then he's a little bit like water. He, like the waves, he has high points and he has low points. And when we study the life of Peter, we, we find an affinity with him. We find commonality with him because in our walk with Christ, we have high points and we have low points. And, and we're encouraged because we find that Peter's low points weren't the end. There was always a recovery. 
And it's the same with us. There's always a recovery. This is one of Peter's highest points. He declares, and maybe he doesn't even fully understand all that he's saying. He just has this revelation in his heart of who Jesus is. He realizes that Jesus is more than a prophet. He realizes Jesus is more than a good teacher. He realizes Jesus is more than a rabbi from Jewish tradition. He's more than a priest from the Old Testament. He's something special. And the only thing that would make sense for this man is that he is Messiah. He is the promised one come to us. He is Elohim come to earth. He is the God of heaven robed in flesh walking among us. That's the only thing that makes sense. And let me tell you, when you get a revelation of who Jesus is, it transforms the entire scripture. It transforms the idea of religion. It transforms the idea of spirituality. These things move from being institutions that we participate in to being parts of our lifestyle. Rather than being a spiritual being wandering through the cosmos, we realize that our spirit is connected to the eternal spirit, God, and His spirit lives inside of us, and we are empowered by His spirit. So we are not a wandering star, but we are a designed, destined person that God created us to be. When we get a revelation of who Jesus is, we become more than a practitioner of religious principles. We become a follower of Christ and we, through obedience to the gospel, fall in relationship with Jesus Christ. And through that relationship with Christ, we grow in knowledge and understanding of who He is and He gets bigger and we get smaller as that relationship grows. That's the powerful message of Peter's declaration Thou art the Christ, a Jewish man, one who has been looking and searching for the fulfillment of all of the prophets. He's been waiting his entire lifetime. His family's been waiting their entire lifetime. His great-grandparents have been waiting their entire lifetime. Rumors going through towns. There's this wild man from the wilderness named John the Baptist been talking about Messiah coming. Peter's like, he's right here. I don't know, my imagination gets going sometimes. I wonder if everybody else dropped their corn on the cob. What'd you just say, Peter? You know, you're right, Peter. That's, I was trying to say it, but I just couldn't quite get my words together. That's exactly who he is. And Jesus then begins to make the declaration and proclaims to him, this isn't something you learned in a theological class, Peter. This isn't something you learned through your own human intellect, but this was a divine revelation from God. This was an understanding because you were seeking after God. God now gave you revelation to who he is. And then Jesus makes an incredible announcement to Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Let's be clear. He wasn't saying, I'm building my rock upon the personality of Peter. 
Because God's church isn't wishy-washy. God's church doesn't have high days and low days. God's church, his kingdom is victorious. End of story. So what was he building it upon? If he wasn't building it upon Peter, he was building it upon the revelation that Peter had that Jesus Christ is God manifested in flesh. And this is the founding principle. This is the core foundation of who Jesus is. The Bible tells us that we are built upon the apostles and the prophets, the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. They are the stones that build the foundation of the church if it were a building. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So he is set. He defines the first corner of the building. And off of him all measurements are made. And off of him all distance is calculated. And off of him all structure is grounded and rooted and bonded together. What an incredible revelation. But we're talking about the life of Peter. It's just a few verses later that we go through and we're reading through. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, I rebuke you, Satan. Whoa! <laughs> Probably Peter's lowest point. Peter has the highs and the lows. He has the, the ebbs and the flows. They're sitting at dinner. Last Supper. Jesus says, somebody here is going to betray me. Come on, let's be honest. It doesn't take a whole lot of awareness to figure out the guy that get up and left the table may be the one. Peter's like, I'll never betray you, man. I'm with you. I'm with you all the way to the end. All the way. Even if that kill us, I'm with you. Just a few hours later, he denies Christ three times. Just because he sounded like him. Aren't you one of those Galileans that follow Jesus? Oh, no, not me. Uh-uh, not me. No, I think you, you have the same accent. You have the same, the same way in the way you speak. You sound like your voice gives you away. You're, the dictation of your words, your accent give you away. You're one of those Galileans that follow Jesus. No, 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 not me. He became irate. He became angry at the accusation that he was a follower of Christ so much that he denied Christ and cursed. Another low point in the life of Peter. We find that Peter's both a saint and a sinner. We find that Peter's both at times a spiritual giant and a spiritual infant. But in the end, we can become encouraged because we find ourselves in the life of Peter. We are just like Peter. The good thing is, Peter always ends up in the right place. Peter has a right heart and a right spirit. His, his emotions may be a little wild. His, his temper and his attitude may be a little bit wild at times. But his heart is grounded and his heart is, is founded in the right place. And he always finds himself with an attitude of repentance when he's wrong. And he always finds himself coming back to God and getting things right. It keeps him going in the right direction. And so the encouragement to us today is don't let your low point be the end. 
Just let your low point be a past experience that you're going to move forward from. Find Christ, find salvation, find renewed repentance again and be faithful to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know when the boxing fight's over? Well, I guess there's two times when the bell rings. But when the guy lays on the ground and he doesn't get back up. It's never over if you're getting back up. So keep getting back up. This world will throw blows at you. Satan will throw blows at you. People will throw blows at you. But don't let your spirit die at its low point. Have a determination in your heart. To, I will get up one more time. I'll get up one more time. If you're in a low point this morning, let me tell you, the only thing that you have to be focused on is getting up one more time. You don't have to plan for your next five times to get up. You don't have to plan out your whole life for the next ten times that you're going to, and how you're going to work it off. Quit trying to figure out your future. We're not even promised tomorrow. But you're living right here and you're living right now. And if you've taken a blow, just set it in your spirit and set it in your heart this morning. I'm going to arise. I'm not staying down. I'm going to get up one more time. Today's my day to stand up. Sometimes the fighter stands up because he's ready to keep on fighting. We've all had those moments in life where, where life's thrown its blows at us and Satan has thrown its blows at us and we're like, all right, buddy, you brought it, I'm going to bring it. And so we stand up and we begin to live for God harder than ever before because you brought the fight. Here we go. There's other times the fighter stands up just because he doesn't want the bell to ring. He ain't got one punch left, but he doesn't want the bell to ring. If I can just stand up and the clock can keep ticking, I can get to that corner. I don't want to throw another punch. I sure don't want to take a punch. But if I can just wait for the clock to ring, I can get to the corner. Can I tell you today that now is your opportunity. Now is your moment. Stand up. And wait till you can get to the corner and Christ will be there. Your coach is there. He's got your rag. He's got the, the cold water. He's got the balm to put on your lips. He'll mend up your cuts. He'll get you ready for the next round. Just don't stay down. If you were to study out the life of Peter according to all the human logic, Peter probably should have been the greatest failure as a disciple. Man, the dude was inconsistent. He didn't have personal strengths. You read in the book of Acts after, after the Holy Ghost is poured out and they're beginning to do ministry in the streets of Jerusalem. They get called before the religious elite. And they describe them as unlearned and ignorant men. He didn't have a real high class profession. He wasn't really looked upon in society as, as someone that you would follow or seek wisdom or advice from. According to his day and his hour and the life that he lived, he was not meant to be successful. 
But Jesus Christ doesn't define our success based upon the circumstances of the life that we live. Rather, God looked at Peter and said, you are going to become a pillar in my church. You are going to become a pillar for the kingdom of God. Peter, upon the rock of the revelation that you have, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and you have the power to bind and to loose on earth. Peter, everybody else may see you as a dumb fisherman, but I see you as the gatekeeper of salvation. Peter, I'm going to give you the authority to preach the gospel for the first time when this church is born. When this church is established, Peter, it's your voice that's going to echo through the multitudes of people. It's your voice that's going to speak to them. You're going to tell them to repent. You're going to tell them how to be baptized. You're going to tell them the power of the Spirit of God filling their lives. God said, Peter, I want to make you into a pillar. That's the longest introduction to a sermon ever. That takes us to Revelations chapter 3 and verse 12. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down, down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. All of us from time to time have doubted our potential to live for God. I have. Anybody else want to be real today? I've doubted my, my potential to live for God. Satan's come along and he's reminded me of dumb things I did in the past. Satan's come along and reminded me of my faults and my failures. I just have to keep reminding him, hey, that stuff's under the blood. I don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about stuff that Christ chose to forget. So don't bring it up anymore. It's over. It's old news. We've been plagued with doubt. We've been plagued with uncertainty. Old shame tries to come back and take over in our lives. We may feel a, a bit of remorse, and we probably should be remorseful maybe for some of the things that we've done in our past, but remorse and shame, remorse and guilt are not the same thing. Remorse is something maybe we hold on to, and it's the lesson that we learn. Shame and guilt are bondages that try to keep us from moving forward. And God said that He can deliver us from the shame and the guilt because He's forgiven us. And if we have faith and believe in the power of His forgiveness, then we are freed from the shame and the guilt of our faults. Amen? Amen. Amen. Sometimes we feel like we're incarcerated by our past. But if you've ever had a dream given to you from God, if you've ever had a vision placed in your life, if you have a calling that God's placed in your heart and on your life today, I want to tell you what that means. That, mean God, that means that God wants you to be a pillar in His kingdom. And so I want to talk to us today, or continue talking to us today, 
on the idea, and Raymond Woodward is the one that, that gave this thought, the pillar principle. Pillar principle. We're going to dig into this verse in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16 and see what this means, pillar principle. First, it is that God demands all of us to have faith. Now you may, you may get your feathers ruffled a bit when you hear the word that God makes a demand on us. Because we live in a world in a society today where nobody demands anything of anybody. That's offensive. We live in a non-authoritative world today. Authoritarians are bad. We're going to have a hard time living for God if we're not okay with authority. I mean, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the God, capital G, of all gods, little g, the prophet said. He reigns and rules over all the affairs of men. And so when God says that he has a demand for us, whether we like it or not, he didn't really ask our opinion. Oh, maybe we can do a quick survey. Did anybody get a pre-birth opinion poll, survey, what color hair would you like? What color would you like your eyes to be? Give me a range of height that you would prefer to be. <laughs> would you prefer to have an affluent life or a... Life of poverty. No, we don't get those surveys. That doesn't happen. That's not, what, that's not how it works. Would you like God to make demands on you to help you become a better person, or would you like to just live your life free-flowing? Those questions don't exist because, frankly, they're irrelevant. God's already set in order. Your eye color was predetermined by genetics. That was God's idea. So was our height. And the fact that he is God gives him the right to ask us any question or to make any demand or to set any act of obedience in front of us because he is God. And if he doesn't have the right to do that in our lives, then he's not God to us. Because I don't serve a God that I can manipulate with my own will and desire and, and manipulate in my hands. The idea of him being God is he's bigger than me. And by God being bigger than me, that means he's bigger than my problems. And if he's bigger than my problems, then I can rely upon him to take care of my problems. The beauty of having a God that's bigger than me means he's bigger than my sin. And if a God is bigger than my sin, then I can take my sin to him and he can handle it. But if my God is simply something that I hold in my hand or simply something that's within my own control, then he has no ability outside of my own ability. And that's not a God, that's an idol. So I serve a God who is bigger than I am. And because of his greatness, he has the authority to make demands on me. The first thing God demands of us is faith. Now here's the beautiful thing about God demanding faith. He's demanding you to have something that he's already given you. 
So it's not like he's saying, hey, go out and come up with something that's impossible. The example is you walk up to your child and you say, hey, here's five bucks. Keep it, store it, don't lose it. Don't let the bullies get it. A few weeks later, you and you take your son out, your, your daughter out, whoever you take your child out, and you're like at the store, and they're like, man, I want this. I really want this. And you're like, you can have it. It's just five bucks. If you had five bucks, you can have it. I'll tell you what, give me five bucks, and I'll buy it. And they, give you, and they pull out their five dollars, and they give it to you, and they're so excited. They tell all their friends, look what I bought with my own money. You just sit back and go, yeah, your own money. <laughs> this is how it works with God. The Bible says that all of us have been given a measure of faith. So when God's first demand on us is have faith, he's asking you for the five bucks he already gave you. So now God having a demand really isn't that big of a deal, all right? He's saying, have faith in me. Here's what 1 John 5 and 4 says. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. He's already given you the faith, and now he's demanding that you enact the faith and live in faith so that you can be an overcomer. So when Christ says you can be an overcomer in this life through faith, He's telling you, you can do it because I already gave you the tools to do it. So when God says, I want to make you a pillar, he's making you a pillar out of stuff that he's already given to you. He's already prepared you. He's already anointed you. He's already set a path and a plan in order for your life. You just have to believe it. That is faith, and we've been talking about faith here a lot the first part of this year. And, and so let's review for a minute. To believe means that we have a knowledge and an understanding of something. We believe it. But faith is more than believing. Faith is believing it enough to act upon it. If you believe God can forgive your sins, then the act of faith is, I believe God enough that I'll pray and ask God to forgive me of my sin. There are some people who believe God forgives sins. But they've not enacted enough belief to act upon it, to pray a prayer, to ask God to forgive them of their sins. So they're a believer, but they're not a faith believer. So we are people of faith. We believe God enough that we act upon it. So I believe God forgives sin. I believe God can forgive my sin. I believe God can forgive my sins. I believe it so much that when I sin, I pray and ask God to forgive me. That's faith. And the first faith that God asks is that we would be obedient to the gospel, this, this new birth experience. I believe God can forgive me, so I'll pray a prayer of repentance. I'll ask him to be my Lord and Savior. I'll make a commitment to him in that moment that I'll walk away from darkness and, and walk towards the light of Jesus Christ. And this is now God beginning to form the base of us being a pillar. We're being obedient to the gospel. We are dying out to ourself and our sin just like Christ died on the cross. 
John 3 and 5 says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this is the next part of being obedient to the gospel, this, this first act of faith in our lives. We get buried in the waters of baptism. Just like Christ was buried in a tomb, so we get buried in the water. And just as Christ rose again, thank God the preacher brings us back out. But it's more than just being brought back out of the water. It's that we enter a newness of life. We are filled with His Spirit. The simple question is, do we believe God enough to obey God? Do we have faith? And that faith is that we will begin that journey of obeying the gospel. And we allow God to begin building us a foundation so that He can make us into a pillar in His kingdom. The second thing that God does is God promises heaven's covenant to us. Here's what he said. I will write upon him the name of my God. Do you understand how powerful this is? Names. Names matter. Names have importance. Take a child. Don't literally do this. It's an illustration. Take a child and let them get lost at Walmart. Don't do it. It's an illustration. And let that child scream, Mom! Nearly every woman in that store is going to go, There is a beckoning call with those three little word, those three letters in that word. Mom, mom, hey, mom. The experienced moms, they'll go. Nope, that's not my child's voice. The newer moms will be like, somebody's yelling, mom. They'll be tearing the store apart trying to find that child that's yelling, Mom. Oh, you're not mine. I left mine at home. <laughs> I just heard Mom. There's something powerful about a name. Our little girl, Adeline, we're working on, on names so she knows Eli, probably because we stand at the top of the stairs and yell, Eli! <laughs> Go mow the yard. Eli, do your laundry. Eli, are you alive? We tried to learn Trenton, but that has too many syllables, so he's just Bubba. And I guess we gave her too many syllables in her own name. We'll point at her and say, who are you? Ah. There's more syllables. The line. Ah. The line. 
The other day we were sitting in the, in the, in the kitchen area, and we were going through the names like we were doing, and I pointed at Mama. She's got Mama. She's got Dada. I pointed at Mama, and I said, Ashley. She looked at me like, who in the world are you talking about? pointed at myself. I said, Todd. And she goes, I said, Mama? Yeah, Mama. Ashley? Names mean something. As we grow older, your name has a purpose. Your name means it's identification. I'm looking around. I'm trying to know my audience. We've got a mixture of generations here, so some will get this and some won't. If you fill out a check, you might know what a check is. <laughs> we literally had a training session with some people at my job. I work at a bank a couple months ago, and an individual did not know what a check was. I was like, and you work here at a bank? You fill out that check and you get to the very bottom, the last line on the check. It says, put your signature. If I write on that check, dad. You know what the bank's going to say? Which one? I write on that check, husband. Which one? I write on that check, high potentate pastor. They're going to say, who? But if I write on that check, Todd Johnson, whoever I gave that check to is going to get their money. Because my name matters. He said, I will write upon him the name of my God. This is what it means to become a pillar in the kingdom of God. He builds a foundation through the gospel. We repent of our sins and then we are buried in the waters of baptism. How do I get God's name on me? It's through baptism. That's how the name of God gets on me. Baptism is indeed an outward physical act. But our obedience to the terms of God's covenant towards us produces an internal spiritual work. I may be preaching to the choir a little bit, but I just want to make an affirmation to us today. Baptism still matters. There are churches in our community, boards that are getting together, trustees that are meeting, and they're making decisions, and they're saying things like, we don't even know what baptism means or why it even matters. We're just not going to baptize anymore. Baptism is an essential part. It's more than just an outward expression of an inward commitment. It's an outward expression that initiates an inward change inside of us. Something happens when you take on the name of Jesus Christ. You are now identified with Him. The church as a whole is identified in Scripture and in typology as the bride of Christ. And so as the bride of Christ, we 
through the marriage of, the God, of being obedient to the gospel and living a Christian godly life, through that process of marriage, we take on his name and the application of that name is in baptism. This is why the Bible lets us know that there is no such thing as a disciple of Jesus Christ who hasn't been baptized. Preacher, you're stepping way on the limbs. I know. But I'm in the Bible. Baptism is an essential part of becoming a member of the bride of Christ. It is an essential part of being in Christ. Some people may ask the question, but do I have to be baptized? Can I say this in all love and mercy? Be direct. Half two questions are legalism. What's a legalist? A legalist is somebody who simply follows the rules and the mandates. Whether they like it or don't like it, they'll follow the rules. Whether they're in love with it or not in love with it, they'll follow the rules. They're simply a follower of the rules. So to say, do I have to, is simply saying, is there a rule or a mandate that requires me to do it? Well, I probably can give you a three-hour Bible study on all the verses about baptism in Scripture. You can decide if that's a mandate or not. But do I have to be baptized is the wrong question anyway. The right question is, when can I be baptized? The true attitude and the true approach is, I get to be baptized. Philip, he's on the side of the road. Jesus says, hey, go stand on the side of the road in the middle of the desert. Sometimes God gives us some crazy things to do. And so Philip just goes and stands on the side of the road in the middle of the desert. He sees a dust plume in the, in the distance, and it's coming. He's like, hey, that guy's coming this way. Interesting. As he comes by, he notices the guy has the scroll open, and he's reading. And he's, he's, I don't know how you hear it. I don't understand it. Maybe he's reading out loud. And he's reading Isaiah. And Philip begins to jog along. What are you reading? Isaiah? You understand what you're reading? Ain't got a clue. I, I need somebody to tell me. Well, if you'll stop, I'll get in and help you out. And so he stops, and Philip gets in there, and the Bible says, from Isaiah, he preaches Jesus. And they're going along. And he's, he's explained to him the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, what it means to repent, what it means to be baptized, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's teaching, he's teaching his whole lesson to him, and they're driving down the road in the middle of the desert, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, man, do I have to be baptized? And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they're driving along, and the Ethiopian eunuch interrupts Philip. Hey, right here's some water. Right here's some water. Can I get baptized? Right here's some water. Can we stop and do it right now? This is the attitude that we have in living for God. And this is what God expects of us as we become this pillar in his kingdom. I'm going to give you a 
Well, it's a long list in these notes, but I'm going to make it a short list. Some reasons why baptism matters. You ready? Baptism matters because through the baptism, our sins are washed away or remitted. They are removed from us. It's one thing to, free, to repent and have our sins forgiven, but it's another thing to go through the waters of repentance and have your forgiven sins removed from you. This is a terrible illustration, but it's just the one that popped in my head. It's one thing to kill all the fleas on your dog. It's another thing to clean the fleas out of your dog. Repentance kills our fleas. <laughs> Baptism removes the dead fleas from us. Who's the dog? <laughs> this is the power of baptism. It cleanses us. It purifies us. Acts 22 and 16 says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. Why? Washing away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. What's the name of the Lord? We call on the name of the Lord for the removal, the remission of our sins. Baptism, it cleanses our conscience. I talked about it already a little bit before. I got ahead of myself in my notes. It removes the guilt and shame from our lives. It gives us a clean conscience. Did you know when you come out of the waters of baptism, after being buried in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, that your conscience is cleaner before God than it's ever been in your known existence? That's why real baptism, true baptism in the name of Jesus Christ changes you. It's more than just getting dunked in the water. It's more than just being buried in water. It's more than just an exercise for other people to watch and have photos taken. It is an experience, a spiritual experience that severs guilt and shame from your life and cleanses you and purifies you. 1 Peter 3.21 the like figure whereunto even baptism, baptism doth also save us, not putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He says we repent and we choose to not do the bad stuff. We choose to not walk after darkness, but to walk after life. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. How do I get a good conscience towards God? i got to have my fleas washed off. I've got to have my shame and my guilt washed away from my life. We good? What else is baptism? Why else does baptism matter? It matters because it's a watery grave. Colossians 2 and, 20, or 2 and 12 for we are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Just as Christ was buried, so are we buried. Baptism makes us a new creature in the water. John 3 and 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water 
and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus a spiritual lesson. The entire context of the conversation is a spiritual context. I have to go there. I'm not trying to throw stones today. I'm not a stone thrower, but I want us to have clear understanding. There are some in our world today, even Christians, who read this verse and they say, being born of the water means our natural birth. We get that. We understand their correlation. Scripture man, help me out. John 3, 3. You might as well get the whole chapter. I'm not reading the whole chapter. It'll just be easier for him to skip verses. All right, two. See, I knew he was going to be there. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher. Come from God. For no man could do it the miracles that you do. All right, the context is spiritual. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is in a spiritual mindset. He hears born again. He automatically flips over to a natural mindset. 3 and 4. Nicodemus flips his mind back to natural. He says, I don't get it. I'm an old man. I don't think I can go a second time into my mother's womb and be born. I don't get it. What are you talking about? And then verse 5, Jesus reiterates back to the spiritual. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about anything natural birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth, Nicodemus. Water baptism is your spiritual water birth into the kingdom of God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is your spirit birth into the kingdom of God. We must be born both of water baptism and of spirit, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in order to become a part of the kingdom. This is God making us a pillar in his kingdom. Next reason that baptism matters, we take on the saving name of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. If we can pray in the name of Jesus Christ for the sick to be healed, for those to get married, for the miraculous to happen if everything we pray is in the name of Jesus Christ why wouldn't we be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ if his name's powerful enough to protect us heal us save us deliver us then his name is powerful enough to save us Galatians 3 and 27 says for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ so how do I get Christ's name on me I put it on through baptism and the last one, I apply the burial of Christ in my life, making it effective to me. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in a newness of life. Baptism is our burial. Amen? The pillar principle. Christ is building us to be a pillar. First is faith. Next is the obedience to the gospel. And third is God made a promise in, in the revelations we read. 
He said, I will make a pillar in the temple of God and he shall go out no more. He promises us heaven's power. God doesn't say, go make yourself a pillar in the kingdom of God. He says, I will make it happen. I will make you a pillar. It's not by our power. It's not by our ability. But it's by God's power working through us. Now that doesn't mean we sit around and go, all right, God, do it. Bumps on logs are forevermore bumps on logs. Bumps on logs ends up being knots in logs, which get cut out and aren't used for anything. Well, that is what it is. God says, I will make you. The context of the word make here, this, this usage of this word make, it's more than that he is going to shape something. A potter takes clay and makes a vessel. They take an existing item, element, clay, and makes something out of it. They manufacture something out of that clay. They make a vessel. Make in this context is, is beyond taking what exists and forming an item out of it. The context here, the word picture is, he will bring into existence what is needed because it is lacking. So when God says, I will make you a pillar in my kingdom, he's saying, when you look at yourself, you don't see the concrete and you don't see the sand and, and you don't see the porcelain and you don't see the water and you don't see all the ingredients needed to make a pillar. But I will bring them into existence into your life and make you into a pillar. Well, I don't feel like I have an anointing in my life. God will bring an anointing into your life. Well, I don't feel like I have understanding of Scripture. God will bring understanding of Scripture into your life. Well, I feel like I live in a void. God loves voids. Go all the way back to Genesis. It was dark and a void. What does God do with voids? Creates everything. Science can spend all of their money and they can do all of the efforts and all the experiments they want to and God bless them. They're trying to figure out how light came to into existence and they can try and figure out the scientific process of light coming into existence but they're missing the initial catalyst for the process to even to have begun. God said, let there be light. Now the scientific process that happened between the voice of God and the existence of light, they can spend years and money to figure it out. But God said, let there be light. And what did he use to make light? Nothing. And if God can create everything out of nothing, then he can create what's needed in your life for you to be the pillar he wants you to be in his church. So me feeling inadequate is not a reason not to be a pillar in the church of God. Me feeling weak and lonely and not adequate is not a reason for me to stop or to throw in the towel or, or to give up. It's reason more for me to say, God, my faith is in you. My trust is in you. My confidence is in you. You are making me into what you want me to be. 
God has the ability to make in you, create out of the void in you exactly what he needs as an available ingredient to make you the pillar that he wants you to be. God is making you a pillar. And God is making you a strong pillar in his kingdom. Just so we're clear, God's not making faux pillars. We are not a, a foam, a pillar that's been cut in half and slammed up against the wall to look nice on a set. God is making you a structural pillar in the kingdom. He's creating you to be a powerful element in his kingdom. God wants you to be the best father you could ever possibly be. Let me tell you, the wisdom of this world won't make you a great father. But Jesus will make you a great father. He wants you to be the best mom that you can be. Let me tell you today, the psycho babble that's out there in our world today probably isn't going to help you be the best mom. There's some things we can learn. I'm not, I'm not throwing it all away. Motherhood's an experience. Fatherhood's an experience. Nobody's an ace when you start. We joke about it, but the first baby gets all the safety. The second baby, eh, 50%. The third baby, those are stairs. It'll hurt the first time. I don't even know where I was going. <laughs> God gives us everything that we need to be a pillar. We're not an ace the moment that we are obedient to the gospel. The moment we prayed a prayer and we had a devotion with God and we felt like he put a calling on our life, we don't stand up great and mighty in that calling. But God works on us and he takes us through the process of maturing us and, and building and, and causing us to grow into what he's called us. To be. I was 17 years old in Diggins, Missouri. Anybody know where that dot in the road is? On top of a blue house of a man that went to the church where I went to church. His name was Ben Cook. Old timers, like old, old, old timers, man, they did crazy stuff in church. We'd be sitting in church, and it'd be dead quiet, kind of like it is right here. And I love Brother Ben Cook. He was a truck driver. He didn't make it to church all the time, but he came when he could. He was a faithful believer in God. And he was country. Like, yeah. And just in the middle of nowhere, dead silent top of his voice boo on the devil man I don't know how many times I got saved when he yelled boo on the devil 
It would make a dead service come to life just because it startled everybody. <laughs> yes, boo on the devil. Yeah, we're all on board. 17 years old. I'm on the roof of his house. This was 2009-10. The summer of the Sahara Desert. It was so hot. And as a teenager, I took the job that paid money, and so I was tearing off roofs. It was so hot. I'm tearing off this roof. I'm soaking wet in sweat. I'm feeling miserable. And I'm off to the end of one house, of the, off to the one end of the house by myself. The other guys are at their end of the house, and they're starting to lay shingles over there. I'm just over here all alone. And pitchfork, shoving off shingle, just thinking about the Lord. God, I feel like a Hebrew child right now. <laughs> the midst of a fiery furnace. And I'm belly aching to the Lord, and I just felt a breeze. Now, I don't know if the wind was blowing or not, but I felt a breeze. I hadn't felt a breeze all morning, but I felt a breeze. And I felt the gentle nudge of God begin to say to me, hey, I want you to preach the gospel. It's hard work. It takes dedication. It's a part of where you're, where you're at right now. And what you're doing right now is an example of what it means to be a pastor and to, to, to preach the word. I want you to go preach the word. And that was the very beginning of, of God beginning to speak to me about preaching the word. And it was a journey for a couple years to, to grow and to go through the process that God had for me. You know why it was a process? I didn't jump off the roof, run down the street, go to the first mega church. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with a word from God. That's not how it works. There's a process. God builds us into a pillar. There was a lot of stuff that didn't exist that God had to create and make to get me to where I am today. An anointing and a calling is a vision and a dream and a plan. And it's the beginning of a process that God wants to take us through to make us pillars in his kingdom. And not just random pillars sitting around, but he wants to strategically place you in the kingdom so that you are supporting the work of God here in this earth. We pray the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How is it going to get done? It's going to get done with my lips and your lips. It's going to get done with my hands and your hands. It's going to get done with my feet and your feet. It's going to get done with my compassion and your compassion. The grace of God will be shown to this world when we become stewards of grace. When I show grace, God's grace will be demonstrated. When I show God's love, His love will be demonstrated. So how can I be used in the kingdom? He wants to make us pillars in the kingdom. Quit finding reasons why you can't. Because God already said you can. You can stand with me. I'll give you hope. There's your hope.
What did God call you to do? What calling did God place in your life? I don't have a calling. We all have a calling. Every single person has a calling. The first calling that every single person ever gets is the call to salvation. And if you've never obeyed the gospel, then the call of salvation is the calling that God wants you to obey. The life of, of Paul gives us the examples of the callings of God. The first calling that Paul ever had from God was the calling of salvation. On a Damascus road, the bright light shone, knocked him off of his animal. It was a mule, but I guess we could say God literally knocked Paul off his high horse. And it was through that calling that Paul was saved. And God can save us. Well, I don't think there's anything in my life worth saving. Well, God will create something worth saving. Just bring him all the broken pieces. And when he's done putting it back together, you'll be amazed at what he creates. The second calling that everybody in the kingdom is called to is to serve. And if God's given you a calling in your life to serve, the question is, Lord, how do I plug in and become a servant of the kingdom? How do I become more than just a disciple? That's, that's obeying the gospel. But how do I become a disciple maker? How do I help lead others to Christ? Can I ask maybe a pointed question this morning? Well, afternoon. When's the last time you said these four words in a conversation with somebody not at church? Gospel, repent, baptize, Holy Spirit. Five words. He's called us to serve the kingdom. He's called us to serve the kingdom. And if that's where you're at today, and that's the calling he's called you to, you may say, well, I don't have the personality to do that. Well, God will help you. Trust me, if you'd have seen this 13 and 14-year-old boy, this is not what he would have been doing. Excuse me, I'm preaching. We went to a little church out in the country. Somebody donated them a drum set. Part of a drum set. It's a bass drum, floor tom, one regular tom, a snare, and two broken cymbals. And the pastor's like, hey, you want to learn how to play the drums? What 12 and 13 year old doesn't want to play the drums? Yeah. So we brought these things home. I'm like, I normally remember symbols. Normally one's upside down and one's up. That makes a, a hi-hat. There we go. I had to figure it out. So, well, I don't have a hi-hat stand. I don't have a pedal that makes it go up and down. I'll just bolt them together and put them on a music stand. Had a hi-hat. Took my little ragtag drum kit, practiced at home a little bit, which is easy. My mom plays the piano. We played in the living room. We jammed. Took this little drum set back to church. First Sunday in church. Small little church. <laughs> so, the drum set was over here. And right in the back wall right there was a door. It's important to the story. Like, 
three feet away from me would have been adorable. We get up there and they start playing the first song. And I'm offbeat and I'm trying to catch up and get up. Oh, there we go. Now we got it. And my self-consciousness just starts going, man. And I'm thinking, why am I sitting up here in front of all these people? These people are watching me. These people are looking at me. These people hear what I'm doing. This isn't my living room. I should be running out that door right now. That kid would have never done this. But that's because God had to take me through a process. God had to build me up. One of the first words of encouragement that ever helped me become a public speaker was in a speech class. We had to write, rewrite the story of the three little pigs. And we had to tell it to their speech class. Well, I grew up in church, so all I knew how to do was sermonize. So I sermonized the three little pigs. Now, it wasn't spiritual, but I went through, you know, my three points and my three points of every point. And by the time I got done, my speech teacher goes, that was the best one. That was fantastic. You're a great speaker. I was like, eh? So it takes process, it takes encouragement, it takes growing, it takes God making us into who we want to be. And so today I'm asking you two questions. I'm asking you a future question of, will you do what God called you to do? And the more important question in this moment is, will you surrender and allow God to make inside of you what needs to be made so that you can do what he's called you to do? And if you're willing to say, Lord, whatever you got to make in me, make it. Whatever you've got to build in me, build it. Whatever you've got to create in me, God, create it in me. Make me into your image. Form me into your, likelihood, into your likeness, God. Let me be who you've made me and called me and set the dream and vision in my life to be. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.